Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is the ninth sermon in our sermon series on the first letter of the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And our text this evening is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That's page 992 in your pew Bible. Now on previous Sundays, we saw how the Apostle Paul has underlined prayer in the first position explaining how it is the work of God in Christ that makes prayer effective and worship possible. He then moves in the second half to discuss public worship, underlining our heart disposition that shapes the worship we have together. As men should pray in holiness, love, and peace, but not necessarily lifting up their hands while they do so, And as women should adorn themselves with modesty, decency, and good works born of God's grace, but not necessarily abstaining from all hair, plating, gold, and pearls, so also women should submit to the headship and authority of men in public worship and not try to reverse the roles, not necessarily, however, refraining from teaching within the clear structure of a delegated authority, always in humility and in love and mutual service. Then we come to our text this evening, where Paul moves to the character of those who qualify to receive that authority, to preside, in other words, in public worship, to oversee God's household, which, as he writes in verse 15, is the church. Now, the qualities or qualifications that Paul sets out here are not local or cultural in nature. We know from chapter 1 that Paul writes this letter to Timothy at a time of transition in Ephesus, which calls for the nurturing of a next generation of leaders. In the same way that the Apostle Paul had delegated much to Timothy, that young man, and continues to do so in this letter, Timothy himself needs co-workers to whom he can share leadership and delegate tasks of ministry in local congregations. Now we know this, don't we, that congregations undergo changes of leadership. When there is growth, new leaders are needed. When there is moral failure and a leader is removed by the bishop, a successor must be lawfully called and licensed. And as the Word and Spirit does its work among any group of individuals and families in a congregation, the people learn, they mature, and they reach points where they're ready to move on to new levels of responsibility, whether that's in the local church or beyond it in the wider diocese. There's also the mutual pastoral care for others in the congregation. They may become formalized as a visitor of the sick, and the housebound in diaconal ministry. 
Now we also find the Lord Jesus spent continual time in his ministry, pouring into the lives of his disciples, both teaching and praying for them. So as we begin, notice how Paul writes in verse 1, it's a noble task to aspire to church leadership. But of course, aspiration alone is not enough. And so he spends the next 13 verses giving a sketch of the qualities that should be obvious in those who step forward for discernment. But this is not necessarily a comprehensive list. Rather, I would suggest that it touches on the high points. I suggest this because Timothy had been with Paul for over a decade. He already knew a great deal about Paul's leadership expectations and had observed other co-workers of Paul in their strengths and weaknesses. So what Paul writes in these verses simply reminds Timothy of what he should definitely not overlook a series of bullet points. Don't overlook these things. So he begins with the overseer. Now, what is an overseer? Not a term we necessarily use today, now is it? If anything, it reminds us of the wickedness of chattel slavery in the past. Overseers, that sort of thing. Well, overseers here is the English Standard Version translation of the plural noun episkopoi, which is the King James Version translates as bishop. Now, episkopoi, or episkopos, the singular, is used interchangeably in the New Testament with that other Greek word, presbuteros, which is translated elder, or is anglicized, as we know, as presbyter which in time passing through English, as it evolved, presbyter became priests. Now, this is by no means the later Latin word sacerdos of the Old Testament priesthood, the one of sacrifice that anticipated the work of the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God. Indeed, the Roman Catholic Church insisting on this is frankly blasphemous taking away the honor due to our Savior as our ultimate high priest. A sacerdos in the Old Testament sense is no longer necessary. Indeed, if we look at our text in the Latin Vulgate, we find that it does not appear at all. Rather, the Latin version of presbuteros appears instead. So here we have the sense of these two words together. In other words, they're synonymous, episkopos, presbuteros. Now, my purpose this evening is not to enter into a debate concerning modern Anglican understanding of various orders, but to simply point out that by the evidence of the scriptures in this use of synonym, we could confirm, and I would confirm, that Anglican bishops and priests are not distinct orders. They are one order with two areas of administration. Presbuteros, a, a presbyter, has a local responsibility of a congregation. A episcopos has a responsibility for a wider regional 
area. It's quite wrong for the Anglican Church in North America to assist that episcopos, episcopacy, is a separate order. Indeed, they go further to say that it's an essential mark of the church, alongside word, sacrament, discipline, and prayer. And they suggest, therefore, that if you lack episcopacy, you are not a true church. But our ultimate authority, God's word written, uses two terms to describe two areas of responsibility within one order, that of elders. Episcopos, presbyteros, in a general sense, are elders. So for simplicity in our study, I'm going to use that term, church elders, gathering together in both terms, just like our New Testament letters do. So we can gather here the qualities that Paul lists for the elder in three general headings. He's to be above reproach, he's to have self-mastery, and he's to have spiritual maturity. Above reproach first, then. What does this mean? Well, this refers to his observable conduct, his observable conduct. In other words, such should be his reputation that if the elder's name were posted for comment, no one in the congregation could bring a substantial charge against him in respect to anything in the list that follows. In other words, he is above reproach. Now, the first place here you'll notice that people may look and consider is to the elder's marriage, the husband of one wife, in verse 2. Literally, it means a one-woman, a one-wife man. Now, how are we to understand this? A lot's been written about it. Well, the common misrepresentation I would suggest in context here is to use quantity. In other words, that he can have only one wife. In other words, if he had been widowed or divorced according to the scriptures, but then remarried, he could not be an elder, whether widowed or divorced. Now, our study has showed us that the context that Paul uses here is a focus on the heart disposition. He's done that, hasn't he? With men and women, and now it continues in the same vein. Therefore, the proper sense here is not of quantity, but of quality. You see, there's this problem of this quantity interpretation, and it's this. A man can be married to only one woman his whole life and not be a one-woman man. Indeed, we could point to recent presidents of the United States who have been married, but certainly have not remained one-woman men. So what we have here is a quality of the heart disposition of the elder toward his wife, to be truly a one-woman man. In other words, there are no other women in his thoughts. He is totally faithful. He does not flirt. There are no dalliances. 
He watches carefully to make sure that he's never placed in a compromising position with a woman not his wife. And he fights and puts to death any inordinate desire that is not for his wife above reproach. The next is have self-mastery. These qualities in verses 2 to 3, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, group well under this heading of self-mastery. To be self-controlled. Notice what's first, hospitality. Love of strangers is what we have here. It's a telltale virtue of the people of God that should be represented in its elders. Paul told the Roman church, didn't he, in Romans chapter 12, verse 13, to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Now, in Romans 12, seek to show means pursue or chase and sometimes means a strenuous pursuit. Therefore, Christian believers, and especially its leaders, are not simply to wait for opportunities for hospitality, They are to pursue them and to do it without grumbling, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, verse 9. So today's elder must invite people to his table. His home must be open. And the writer of Hebrews offers a special motivation for this based on the Old Testament scriptures. You may recall it when we studied the letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 13, the pastor writes, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Indeed, in our study of Abraham, we saw it. We also can find it in our own study of the Old Testament, in Judges, where angels appear unknown to those who entertain them with hospitality. Now, notice it's paired with able to teach, as the other elder ministry being distinctive. Well, what does he mean there? Remember, this is just a bullet point, so we must go somewhere else to find out what it means, and we must go to Titus. Here is Titus 1.9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This demands that the elder be a student of the word, a man who compares scripture with scripture, the analogy of faith that we have studied in this letter, and can communicate it clearly, and when necessary, defend it to those who may attack it. Now next, there's the demand for the elder's temperance, not a drunkard, literally not lingering beside wine. Now, drunkenness indeed was an ancient blight. In Corinth, some Christians were even in the habit of getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. So Paul repeats this warning to deacons in verse 8 as well, and again to elders in Titus 1.7. Now, the real truth is simply this. Alcohol is a destroyer of truth, and its abuse is a chemical slavery. There have been many times in the course of my ministry of 32 years that I have seen families destroyed because of alcoholism. And the alcoholic 
ending in an early grave. Therefore, temperance should be followed in verse 3 by a description of a particular temperament in the elder. Not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Now, the translation, not violent, is literally not a giver of blows. In other words, quarrelsome, pugnaciousness. That's what we get here. In other words, it's its opposite, gentleness. Gentleness is the elder's approved style. This is what also models our Savior. For Matthew eleven twenty nine tells us that he was gentle and lowly in heart. And as Paul reminds us in Galatians 5, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit in the mature believer. Paul describes this requirement more fully for us again in his second letter to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And then we come to money. Specifically, in our context, the heart attitude, the disposition towards it. This plays a big role in elder qualifications, not a lover of money. There's an old church saying, if a man is drunk on wine, you will discipline him in the church. But if he is drunk on money, you will put him on the vestry of the church. Beware, my friends, of the prosperity gospel. What I mean is, if a man has lots of money, thinking that therefore God has blessed him, never mind what the Bible says about that situation, we also might think he's smart. Well, maybe. It means he's a good manager, a practical man, that he has power, he can lead. Really? Paul speaks so explicitly to the contrary in 1 Timothy 6. We'll come to that later. Here's what it says. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, my dear friends, spiritual slavery is not limited to chemicals, alcohol, or drugs. It could also be one of money, a slave to money. And again, Titus 1.7, For an overseer as God's steward, he must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, what's the point? The point is not whether one is rich or poor. The disqualification out of hand for church leadership is to be a lover of money, enslaved to its pursuit. Whatever the case, one cannot love money and be qualified for the church leadership. This sober-mindedness, this self-controlledness, this respectability is a must. 
And Titus likewise says it's necessary for leadership. And it is possible with God's help. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, my dear friends, self-mastery comes from our Heavenly Father. The elder must be mastered by his Heavenly Father. Now, what of spiritual maturity? Then there's the matter of spiritual maturity, which Paul details in the last three qualifications. He talks first of the elder's home. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, this principle was especially cited because churches in those days met in homes. They were house churches, and very often they met in the elder's house. And the word translated here, household, is the same word used as a metaphor for the church, as I said earlier. So Paul is making an important point. The man who fails at the family household is disqualified from the other household, that of the church. Now, logic of the next qualification must be obvious to us. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, this language is so expressive, isn't it? Puffed up. It means, actually, filled with smoke, or I would say, full of hot air. The la-la land of self-centeredness. It's it's humility, rather, that is sought for in the elder. A humility that is seasoned by experience. That is the qualification here. And the final one takes us full circle back to the matters of one's reputation, which is where we began. He must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, well thought of is literally beautiful. It's a beautiful witness in the ancient language of the Greeks. He must have a beautiful witness with outsiders. And indeed, he will, if his reputation is above reproach, if his self-mastery is evidenced by his being sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable, if in his ministry he is hospitable and able to teach if his temperance is evidenced by his not being a drunkard, if his temperament is not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, if in respect to his money he is not a lover of money, if his family is in order, if his maturity is established by two or three witnesses of the congregation. You see, such a life, my dear friends, is one that is outlined in the Old Testament as well. Indeed, we find it in all of the wisdom texts there. You can find that for yourself this week for your homework. There's a symmetry, a beautiful symmetry, that adorns the believer, that adorns the gospel of Christ, because so much is at stake. You see, because what a leadership is in its microcosm, that the church will become in its macrocosm. Indeed, it's a responsibility every elder understands. 
that who they are before the Lord in time and influence in preaching and teaching will be reflected in the congregation which he serves. And this has everything to do with the gospel and the mission of that local church. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.